Dear Lord, we could never measure up to the magnitude of what you've presented to us in your word, especially in the book of Romans. Uh, We're not worthy to receive it. We're not capable of understanding it, not in our own power. Father, we'd be lost apart from what you have revealed and from what you have accomplished in your Son. Uh, Whenever we come to your word, Father, we come perhaps with uh, a degree of anticipation, but perhaps also with uh, a sense of entitlement, maybe, or uh, perhaps, Father, without a deep enough respect for the fact that these things are, are deep things, wisdom you have hidden from the world and made available to us. As Christ said, that he thanked you that you had hidden your wisdom from the wise and you had revealed it to infants. And, Father, that's who we are in spiritual terms. And uh, yet, Father, it is, a, it is such an exciting thing that you have allowed us this insight and you are giving us wisdom as we pursue you in your word. And we confess, Father, our understanding will f- fall short at times because of our own earthly limitations and sinful considerations. But, Father, none- nonetheless, you continue in your, your grace. You continue offering to us things that are, that are wondrous, Father, and encouraging, things that remind us of your love for us and your plan, your sovereign plan for us, Father. Thank you, Lord, for that revelation. Every, every week we've been in this book, it's been more of the same in that regard. We thank you for it. We take none of it for granted. We know you are the teacher. We come and we sit at your feet tonight. And we ask, Father, that you'd explain things to us in plain ways. And yet, Father, let us appreciate the depth and the wisdom of what you have written down so that we may glorify you all the more for what you reveal and for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's rejoin Paul's defense of God's faithfulness to Israel, which is chapters 9 through 11 in Romans. As I mentioned, we're in Romans 10 tonight. I've summarized Paul's topic in these three chapters with the question, what about Israel? What I mean by that specifically is, how do you explain Israel's rejection of Jesus? God promised Israel a Messiah. He brought them a Messiah. And yet, Very few Jews in Paul's day recognized Jesus as Messiah and became his followers. And Paul had just declared to us in chapter 8 that our eternal future was secure, that our glory was assured because God has made promises to us in his word concerning those very things. But given Israel's circumstances, maybe God's promises were not so certain after all, some might wonder. So now Paul is defending God's faithfulness by explaining Israel's unbelief in how it's consistent with God's faithfulness. And in chapter 9, Paul began his defense explaining that throughout Israel's history, the Lord has selected some for his mercy and he has passed over others. Paul used various examples from Israel's past to illustrate the Lord working in this way, in choosing God selecting one son of the patriarchs over another of the sons to receive his promises. He showed God selecting a man, Pharaoh, to be defeated in confrontation with Moses, hardening his heart to ensure that outcome. And then finally, Paul said, for both Jew and Gentile, God selects some among humanity for glory while preparing others for destruction. And Paul added that this pattern is consistent with God being perfectly just, perfectly holy in all that he does. So now at the end of the teaching last week, Paul had just given us the ultimate reason for why God exercises this selectivity among humanity. Paul taught us that God saves only some 
to ensure that we who have received his mercy may fully appreciate what we have. God maintains this contrast between those destined for glory and those destined to destruction because without that contrast, you and I could never appreciate all that God has done on our behalf and thereby glorify him for it. So now at the end of chapter 9, Paul explained, has explained Israel's rejection of Jesus as a predetermined outcome by God's choice. That is to say, God was not unfaithful to his promises to Israel when he rejects Israel. God simply selected a minority within Israel to receive his mercy, a group that the Bible calls the remnant. And Paul, in quoting from the Old Testament passages that we saw last week, makes the argument from Scripture. And I'm going to pick up again there briefly, not to teach them through a second time necessarily, but as a bridge into chapter 10. So begin again in chapter 9, verse 25. Paul, again, proving that God has this plan to select only a minority of Israel while leaving the rest behind in Jesus' day. He says in chapter 9, 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. Now, as I said, we looked at these verses last week, so let's just review them again quickly. Paul quotes from Mosiah, who foretold that there was to be a day for Israel when God would elect Gentiles to know him and to receive his mercy. And those people, those Gentiles, would step into Israel's place for a time. But then he added, later, God promises to extend his mercy to Israel again. Those who had been told were not my people, he will come back to them later and say, now you are my people again. Then secondly, Isaiah 10 promised that God would maintain at least a few believing Jews within the nation, even as he was rejecting the majority. And as I mentioned, that minority, the Bible calls the remnant, those the Lord chooses for his mercy. And Isaiah says he was among the remnant of God. In his case, he was preserved from the attack of the Assyrians against the nation of Israel in his day. But Paul's using that quote simply to illustrate that this has always been God's pattern. God will always appoint some within Israel to receive his mercy so as to not completely reject his nation, while at the same time putting many under judgment. And then finally, Paul quotes again from Isaiah in verse 29, that God brings destruction upon all those in Israel who are not his remnant. So as assuredly as he destroyed ungodly Sodom and Gomorrah, so it will be for unbelieving Israel. God preserves only the remnant, Isaiah says, even as the rest are left without mercy. Paul now moves into a discussion of Israel's present circumstances, and that's ultimately where we go tonight. Chapter 10, as you may remember, is Israel's present. And Paul moves from past to present at the end of 9, leading us into 10. And it starts in verse 30. So Paul now discusses Israel's present circumstances following their rejection of Messiah. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. 
They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it was written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This is Paul's final question to conclude the chapter. He asks, what shall we say then? And we could rephrase Paul's question this way. What shall we say about Israel? Or maybe you could say, how do you explain Israel's rejection of Jesus then? And Paul leads us to the answer by contrasting the effect of Jesus's arrival on Gentiles versus on Jews. He's saying, let's consider how these two groups responded to the Messiah's arrival. The effect he had on Jews versus Gentiles is starkly different. Gentiles, Paul says, attained, or you could say took hold of the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus, while the Jews ignored Jesus, Paul says, preferring to seek for a righteousness of their own. Now, we know this from our history. Nothing in this is surprising to us for what we've already experienced throughout the history of the church. But that outcome was so unexpected, so improbable, that it can only be evidence of God transferring his mercy away from one group and toward the other. Remember, the Gentile world was largely ignorant of God and of his word concerning salvation or a Messiah. Gentiles were pagans. They were pursuing all manner of evil and debauchery. And so naturally, they're not pursuing righteousness, Paul says. Then meanwhile, you have the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation was actively pursuing righteousness for generations and generations. And by that, I mean they treasured the word of God. They were attending to the requirements in the word of God and in the law. They did it with great care. They knew a Messiah was coming and they longed for his day. They talked about his kingdom and how they would enjoy it when it came. That was the Jewish mentality. When you look at these two groups, which one would you predict would receive the Messiah gladly? Well, against all odds, when the Messiah finally arrived, the Gentiles ran to embrace Jesus while the Jewish people rejected him. Paul says, Israel did not receive what they were pursuing, that is righteousness, because they pursued it in the wrong way. That is, they sought to become righteous by keeping the law rather than accepting God's righteousness, which would be appointed to them by faith in Jesus Christ. So in human terms, what we're saying is Israel was blinded by their own pride so that they could not see Messiah when he came. And Paul says, when he did come, he became a stumbling stone to Israel. And what Paul's doing in this passage at this stage, which is not necessarily easy for us to see in English, he's actually choosing words that suggest two runners in a race. And so what he's saying is this. If you can imagine a Gentile runner on a track, the Gentile runner, though, he's completely oblivious to the fact that there's a race underway. He's just moving around the track, no urgency, doesn't even know there's a finish line, has no interest in the prize, doesn't even know there's a prize. He's just walking around the track. On the other hand, you've got a Jewish runner. He's given this race everything he's got. He's intently focused on the finish line. He's striving with all his might. He is determined to obtain the prize of righteousness. It's in his view, and he's going to get it. But then a large rock just falls out of heaven directly onto the track right in the path of the Jewish runner. Tied to that rock is the very prize that the runners are competing to win. And the Jew is so intently focused on reaching the finish line that he neglects to notice the rock is in his path and much less the prize attached to it. And he just stumbles over. It lands on his face, lying there in the middle of the track. Meanwhile, the Gentile runner just sauntering down the track, blissfully unaware. And as he goes by, he happens to notice the rock. And he stops, he looks at it, notices the prize attached to it. Gladly, he claims the prize 
without having worked to obtain it, without even having looked for it or known that it was possible. So you have the Jew trying to obtain righteousness, stumbling over the means by which God appointed that you could obtain it. And at the same time, you have the Gentile who has no interest in righteousness whatsoever. He obtains it, but he obtains it because the Jew stumbled over it. Had the Jew seen it, they would have received it. Had the Jew been looking for it, it wouldn't have been there when the Gentile came. And Israel's present circumstances were the result of prideful, self-deceived hearts. That is to say, in Isaiah, God foretold that his people were going to make this very mistake. In fact, in verse 33, Paul quotes Isaiah saying, It was the Lord who lays this stone of stumbling, this rock of offense before Israel. And those are labels, of course, for Jesus, for Christ. And the point of the prophet is the Lord brought Jesus to Israel just as he promised. I mean, let's get straight here. God's not unfaithful to his promise. He promised a Messiah. He told them what to look for. And then he brought him just as he said he would. He did exactly as he promised. You cannot fault God's faithfulness to his promises. The problem was Israel's hard heart. They stumbled over Jesus rather than receiving him. And Isaiah said this would be the result. In fact, he says the Lord lay the stone knowing it would be a rock of offense to Israel. And then you have the Gentiles. They weren't looking for a Messiah, but they got him. So you have to conclude the Lord has shifted his mercy in favor of ignorant Gentiles over stubborn Jews. Israel's rejection of Jesus is according to their own sinful choice, but at the same time, what we're learning is that is an outcome God predetermined for his people by withholding his mercy. He allowed them to be who they were, knowing what would transpire as a result. We cannot say God was unfaithful or that he did not deliver what he promised, but God exercised his sovereign right to leave Israel in their sin so that he might extend his mercy to another group instead. So the record of Israel's past, which is chapter 9, established two important principles that carry us now into chapter 10. First, the Lord is sovereign over how he dispenses his mercy to everyone, whether Jew or Gentile. And then secondly, Israel's rejection of Christ was foreknown and predestined by God as part of a plan to save Gentiles. So with those concepts in hand, let's move to chapter 10, Israel's present so given what has happened, we come now to a new question. What should we expect for Israel today? And specifically, the question is, is God fair with his covenant people during this time? That is, are we to still consider God faithful to Israel in light of the fact that we are now in this position of Israel outside God's mercy, Gentiles inside God's mercy? Remember, there's no covenant in the Bible to a Gentile. God's never made a covenant with Gentiles now, if you go back prior to the Jewish nation, he's made covenant with people like the Adamic covenant or the Edenic covenant or the Noahic covenant. But once Israel existed, God has only made covenants through that people. So Gentiles are not promised anything specifically in Scripture, but we are granted by God's mercy opportunity to enjoy things God promised to Israel, which we talk more about in chapter 11. So let's address these questions first. God, is he dealing with his covenant people fairly during this time? The way these questions get answered in chapter 10 are designed to address major stumbling blocks within the mind of a Jewish reader who is watching or listening to what Paul is doing in this chapter. For example, they might ask, wasn't Israel's zealousness proof that they deserved their Messiah? That is to say, 
Wasn't their desire for God itself reason for God to do something for them? Because obviously the Jewish people were very zealous. Or secondly, hasn't God tricked Israel by failing to explain his plan to them? Did he make it easy for Gentiles to receive his mercy while he led Israel on a wild goose chase with the law, giving them a law that he knew was not their means to salvation? And then thirdly, is God keeping Israel in the dark now while he's got this open door to Gentiles? In other words, is God letting Israel have their fair shot at the gospel? And those are questions Paul addresses in the course of chapter 10. And once again, he's going to start this chapter by defending his honor, by reassuring the audience that he's in Israel's corner. Chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All right, it's very likely that at this point in Paul's discourse that his Jewish audience was probably beginning to question his objectivity just a little bit based on what he had said in chapter 9. So Paul starts chapter 10 reminding them that he truly wants to see his people saved. This is truly his heart. Notice Paul calls his audience brethren there at the beginning of verse 1. And typically in most New Testament works, we would think of that as a synonym for Christians, but not in this context. Brethren here means fellow Jews. Paul says to his fellow Jew, I, like you, lament Israel's rejection of Christ. In fact, he says, I'm praying to the Lord that our brethren, the Jewish people, would be saved. Now, when Paul says he prays for Israel's salvation, we're reminded that God's sovereignty in the affairs of the heart doesn't preclude us from making appeals like this. Paul prayed that God might save as many Jews as possible, as he says here, while at the same time, Paul is the one who understands that it's not in God's will to bring the entire nation of Jewish people into faith at this time. He's the one teaching us that. Paul sympathized with the plight of Israel, but he also accepted God's plan to hold Israel outside mercy for a time. And I think that's a perspective you and I are supposed to take, as well as as anyone else who comes to these chapters, concerning any person or group of people we might wish to see saved. You may pray earnestly for the Lord to save a person or a group of people, and at the same time, acknowledge that God's will, both for nations and for individuals, will be done. And you don't have to set those two truths against each other as if they're in competition or only one can be true in your heart. Don't allow the truth of God's sovereignty to become an excuse for not engaging in intercessory prayer or evangelism. And likewise, you don't have to deny his sovereignty in order to pray with an expectation of influencing future outcomes. Remember, in chapter 9, Paul taught the Lord predetermined Israel's stumbling. And in chapter 10, he opens saying, I'm praying for their salvation. If Paul can reconcile the two, we can. And then from there, Paul dives into the first question. Did Israel deserve to have their Messiah given their earnestness? Isn't that counting for something? In verse 2, Paul says, he testifies, or we could say, he agrees that the Jews do have zeal for God. And what Paul is acknowledging with his readers is that, yeah, we can see just how hard our people are trying. They're trying really, really, really hard. The history of Israel under Greek and Roman control testifies to the zeal of the Jewish people. Israel fervently defended God and his law. They refused to engage in idolatry. They often faced death instead of conceding 
to these other powers. In fact, they were so famously zealous for God that they won the only religious exemption in the Roman Empire. Whenever Rome would roll into town and conquer some new people group, they'd always make them eradicate any competing religious observances or deities. The Romans required all their subjects to pledge allegiance to the Caesar and to the pantheon of Roman gods. And when Rome tried to enforce this rule in Judea, the Jews objected so violently and consistently that Rome finally relented. And the Senate gave the Jewish people in Judea the right to continue in their own worship practices. That was the only such exemption they offered to any people in the entire history of the Roman Empire. Certainly, no one's going to fault the sincerity of the Jewish people in pursuing God. But Paul says it wasn't sincerity that was their problem. It was knowledge. In other words, you can be very sincere in your pursuit of God. But if you don't pursue him according to the truth, you're just sincerely wrong. That's how the Jewish people were. Our world is filled with sincerely religious people, many of whom are devout and as zealous as the Jews of Paul's day. But their sincerity and their zealousness gain them nothing in the end if it's not in accordance with knowledge. So don't ever mistake sincerity for inspiration. Remember, the enemy has disciples too. Many of those disciples are just as willing to die for their God as we are for ours. And those disciples can make strong arguments from their religious books. They can devote countless hours to prayer. Uh, They can make great personal sacrifices. They can attend weekly services routinely. They can do many good works and all the rest. But those displays of piety are worthless in the quest for righteousness. And they tell you nothing about what is true. In verse 3, Paul says, Israel's zealousness lacked the understanding that salvation comes only by God's righteousness. And you know from our earlier studies in this book that only a righteousness that is equal to God's own righteousness, his own perfection, only that level of righteousness will enter heaven. And God's righteousness is perfection. It's literally no sin at all. That's the level you and I have to obtain if we are to be worthy of entry into heaven. So no matter how many hours you pray, how many sacrifices you make, how many good works you do, you can't erase a single sin in the history of your life. And yet, only one sin is enough to disqualify someone from heaven because that puts you just less than the glory of God. That's why you have to have something from someone else. You have to have God's righteousness given to you. When Paul says that they did not accept the righteousness of God, that's a reference to Christ specifically. Paul says Christ is the righteousness of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So in their pride, Israel did not recognize that only God can perform the law perfectly. And so if you want credit for perfection against the law, you have to accept God's work in the form of Christ. You cannot try to do it on your own. Instead, Paul says, they wanted to do it on their own. They took the other path. And he's presenting these as mutually exclusive paths. You either seek to make yourself righteous or you give up on that path. The Bible calls that repenting. You turn and you take a different path. And that path Over here is the free gift of God's righteousness available by faith in Jesus Christ. So you can have one path or you can have the other path. can't choose both paths because they go in opposite directions. No more than you can choose to be both single and married or to be asleep and awake at the same time, which some of you pull off in this class weekly. (laughs) Because one negates the other. So Paul expresses this mutual exclusivity in verse 4. He says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What he means is this. 
For the one who accepts the righteousness of God, that is Christ in faith, for that one, the law ceases to be a path to righteousness. Obviously, the law was never truly a path to righteousness. That's not what we're saying. What he means, though, is that for the one who is willing to receive the righteousness of God by faith, the path of law no longer holds any attraction because you don't need it anymore. Once you've obtained God's righteousness, you give up trying to earn your own because you you realize you can do no better than perfection. What am I going to add to what God's already given me? It's a it's a waste of time to put a cherry on top of God's perfection. And actually, in, in what I'm accomplishing, it's not a cherry, it's filthy rags. The point is, what we think we're adding to the law, to anything, is it's, it's a completely self-deceived notion. It's not of any value to anyone. Once you have God's righteousness, you're done. So, to the first question, that is of Israel's zealousness, Paul says, Israel's zealousness for the law is not cause for God to reward them. Rather, it's the very reason for their downfall. Israel did not subject themselves to Christ And the proof of that is that even now they remain committed to the law as a path to righteousness. So this becomes something of a of a litmus test to the one who is determined to walk a path of self-righteousness through works of whatever means law or whatever other system to the one who is dedicated to that. They are showing themselves to have not received the righteousness that is from God because they don't understand it. They don't recognize what it means. To understand what it means to receive God's righteousness is at the same time to recognize the futility of the other path. And so Paul says, is God just in setting his people aside? Well, as long as they're pursuing the law as a means to righteousness, it's demonstrating that they don't have the heart that's required for salvation. So God is just in denying them such. That moves Paul to the second question. Did God withhold this little detail from his people? You know, did... Did he lead Israel into misunderstanding the purpose of the law, thinking that maybe it was a means of obtaining righteousness? Did he he kind of play rope-a-dope with them? He kind of got them looking over here and then punched them when they weren't looking? There are people who have that sense that somehow this is an unfair trick that God played on Israel, especially in comparison to the Gentiles. Gentiles never got that distraction of the law. They didn't have that barrier. They just came upon Jesus without any background and found it an easy thing to accept. Maybe the Jews would have done the same if God hadn't thrown that law in their path. Paul addresses this question in the next passage. Verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Well, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. While it may not be immediately evident in the way it's written, Paul's actually addressing the challenge that God has somehow put the law into Israel's history to stumble them. And he does it by repeating from the law itself. Every quote he gave there was from the law. And he starts by saying, for Moses writes, which is a reference to the author of the first five books 
of the Bible, which Jews collectively consider the law. All five books are called the law. And in verse 5, Paul begins with this quote from Leviticus 18, verse 5, and I'll read it to you. 18.5 says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live, if he does them, I am the Lord. So that phrase, my statutes and my judgments, in Leviticus, it, it refers to the entire law, all that God gave Israel. So what he says is, a man, a person, may live if he or she does all of them. Conversely then, failing to keep even one of them means you don't live. means death, which refers ultimately to the eternal outcome of death. So friends, that's obviously an impossibly high standard. right? One mistake, one time, and all your life you're done. The law itself set perfection as a minimum standard. The law said, this is the standard. If you wanted to obtain eternal life, make no mistakes. One error, one failing, and you're done. So what Paul's reminding us is that Israel heard from the beginning, from their own law, that following law was not a viable means of being made righteous. The law itself made that clear by setting such an impossibly high standard. And that means the law was not intended to trick Israel. On the contrary, the law was intended to warn Israel not to depend on it, not to misuse it, not to see it for what it wasn't. Furthermore, the law told Israel that in contrast to the perfection that the law required, there was a means to righteousness that was actually quite easy. It wasn't out of their reach at all. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses told the people of Israel that accomplishing the law, that is, meeting its terms, wasn't that difficult, though it may have appeared that way. And Moses goes on in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, to say this. For this commandment, and what he means by that is this expectation that you keep the law perfectly, this commandment which I command you today, it's not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. And of course, if you were someone in Israel at that point hearing these words, having heard the law's standard of perfection, you might have been looking at yourself going, maybe not to you, Mr. Perfect. To the rest of us, it sounds pretty tough. And then Moses explains, verse 12, It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we might observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Well, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart, that you may observe it. What Moses was saying is, No one needs to say, Who's going to go to heaven to obtain the righteousness that I'll need to keep that law? Who's going to go to the ends of the earth searching for the person who can help me keep the law perfectly? See, the attitude was starting with the concept that I have to do the law. I have to do the law. How can I do the law? Well, somebody's got to come down from heaven and get me to do it. Someone's got to go find them, the magic person somewhere in this world who can make me do it. I don't know how I can do this without help. To that, Moses says, well, that's not the right solution in any case. It's a different kind of solution. And Paul adds his own application in verses 6 and 7. Paul's changed it a little bit. You notice he added the words to bring Christ down or to bring Christ up from the dead. These are Paul's own application. He's not interpreting what Moses said. He's adding his own thought on top of it. That is to say, Israel didn't have to keep the law perfectly in order to warrant the arrival of Christ. Think of it this way. You and I, receiving Christ, don't have to work the law. But if your attitude is the law is your means to righteousness you're already starting with a backwards perspective. And so to that person, Paul is saying, you know, you don't have to do the law perfectly in order to get Christ. You get Christ because you can't do the law perfectly. And similarly, you don't need someone to go resurrect the Christ for you 
You don't need someone perfect to go, you know, be worthy of Christ resurrecting. You can just have him resurrect even though you're not worthy of it. These things happen, Christ coming, Christ resurrecting. Those things happen to compensate for our inability to keep the law. They're not the result of us keeping the law. Paul says in verse 6, what righteousness is actually based on is on faith. And a righteousness based on faith never says such things. The person who knows that they are saved by faith alone is not consumed with worry over whether they're keeping the law or not. Not for the sake of righteousness. If you understand how God appoints righteousness, you don't think about those questions because you understand the solution is not found in your own personal efforts in any case. You realize that keeping law is a fruitless endeavor for that. Paul says true righteousness acknowledges the solution is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And in verse 9 and 10, Paul explains that when Moses said the solution was in your mouth and in your heart, he was describing a confession of faith. That's a way of describing what a confession of faith involves. It refers to the gospel message. And Paul says, it is the word of faith that we are preaching. That's the gospel message, Paul says. It's a word or a message that declares that faith is a means of righteousness. Now, Paul confuses us a little bit because he divides that confession, as it were, into two parts. One for your mouth and one for your heart. The reason he divides it that way in what he gives us in chapter 10 is because Moses did that. All Paul is doing is paralleling Moses' structure. Moses uses two steps. Paul uses two steps. He addresses the confession first, that is to confess with your mouth. And then he addresses the believing next, believing in your heart. Because again, he's paralleling Moses. Moses used mouth first and then he used heart second. So Moses is just the pattern that Paul is following. But in real life, these two things work in unison. They are not separate things. They don't each have some half to the process. They're not each accomplishing something different. They're two sides to the same coin. To confess, for example, to confess means to agree with what someone else is saying about someone. I agree with you. I confess the same truth. And to believe means to hold a perspective based on a conviction rather than on proof. To have faith, not to see. Paul says true righteousness says what others are saying about the identity of Jesus. And true righteousness believes what other believes about his work. And those are the same thing. We agree he is Lord. That is that he is God incarnate. We believe he died and rose again to prove his claims. You could reverse that. You could say we agree he died and rose to prove his claims. And we believe he is Lord. They're interchangeable. And in verse 10, Paul explains that these two things working together as one bring salvation. Because of the way Paul maintains unity with Moses' words, though, some of us get a little confused with the verse. Because when he says, with our heart we believe, resulting in justification and righteousness, and with our confession in our mouth, it results in salvation. Here again, he's maintaining the pattern that Moses established. Because clearly, being righteous and having salvation are one and the same thing. You cannot have one without the other. So Paul uses this construct to explain that a confession of faith is all that's required to be saved. The confession of the mouth, the belief in the heart, they come together. And in verse 10, he simply reverses that. You notice he he puts them in the opposite order in verse 10. Anybody know what that is? It's called a chiasm. It's a form of Hebrew poetry. So Paul, writing in poetic ways, using a chiasm, takes Moses' structure and just repeats it and then flips it in a chiastic structure. But in all of that, It's one singular process described in two discrete steps which are happening in unison in the same moment. Beyond that, don't get wrapped up in the fact that there's two pieces to it. What's his main point? His main point is summarized in verse 11. 
That is, if you want to skip past all of that and just understand where it comes down to, Paul says the one who believes in the Messiah won't be disappointed in eternity. That's the answer. The heart and the mouth working together, expressing faith in the Messiah. And when you take that route, you receive what you hope to have, which is righteousness. You won't be disappointed like those who depend on their own. So again, how do we blame God for Israel's current state of unbelief when he told them what to expect beforehand and he kept his promise faithfully? No one could claim that they were set up for failure. In fact, their own law declared, don't use me. Don't let this be your standard because the standard is perfection. You want to live by this standard? You're going to have to die by it then too. Do you really want that? No. And then Moses goes on and says, you know, you can keep it in an easy way. The easy way is confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. That righteousness is just a matter of a confession of faith. Isaiah confirmed that it's only by faith that someone can be in eternity without disappointment. So Israel had all they needed to know to understand that the law was not a means to righteousness, but rather a confession of faith in God's promises. That's the way that you become righteous. And I should add, Israel had no less opportunity to know these things than the Gentiles did. I mean, Paul says in verse 12, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The Lord's the Lord of both. He has uncountable riches. He makes available his inheritance to anyone who calls upon him in faith. And if you were to pick one of those two groups to say one got treated unfairly in the process, it wouldn't be the Jew. It'd be the Gentile. Gentile had no clue. They had no forewarning. And yet they found it. God has always intended that the door be opened to both groups. And Paul quotes from Joel 2, where the Lord promises that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Jew or Gentile, will be saved. That is to say, there's not two systems of salvation. There's only one. And the Lord explained it to his people plainly in Scripture. So the Lord did not hide the plan of righteousness from Israel. He did not make it unnecessarily complicated. It was plainly explained. It was as easy as a confession of faith. And that's far more advanced notice than any Gentile got. So once again, you see that their present circumstances are the result of hard hearts, not God's failure to keep his word. It was his word to Israel that gave them the path of righteousness. They just chose another path, and that's where they remain. That leads you to the final, the third and final question. That is, perhaps Israel hasn't received adequate opportunity to know that Jesus was the Messiah, that this is all just a big misunderstanding. If only the apostles like Paul had explained these things to Israel, then the nation would have recognized their error. They would have received Christ. So in a sense, they're saying God is unfairly withholding the explanation from his people and thereby preventing them from coming to faith in Jesus. This is just a big communication problem. If only we got that problem solved, Israel would get right with God. And Paul addresses that basic concern to end the chapter. I should preface this last section by mentioning that it is a favorite section in Christendom for defending the need for evangelism. And while we would never criticize the need for evangelism, in fact, that is a well-proven truth in Scripture. We all are for it, of course. The irony is this is the worst passage in the world you could choose to defend evangelism. Because Paul's point in this passage is evangelism didn't do anything. That it wasn't the problem and it's not the solution. So listen to how Paul addresses it. Verse 14. Speaking of Israel, he says, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? (laughs) Indeed, they have. 
Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Oh, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Well, first Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The key to understanding this passage is this. You have to recognize that Paul has assumed his audience's perspective to make to make this argument, but he doesn't agree with their perspective. So he's being his own devil's advocate. He's making their argument for them so that he can defeat it in this discourse. Okay, And so Paul's audience has just learned that Israel still has opportunity to be saved, that if they would just confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, they too could have what the Gentiles are having. Right? They just heard him say that. But it's kind of a good news, bad news story. The good news is that Israel's rejection of Jesus when he came to them, that didn't close the door on their opportunity to be saved. Like, like Gentiles, Jews still had an opportunity to be saved if they just confessed Christ. If that would happen, it'd be great relief to Paul, great relief to Paul's Jewish readers who wanted to see their, their people saved, right? Everybody's got this positive idea. Now, though, maybe it's not so bad after all. But the bad news is that despite how easy it is for them to find salvation, very few Jews were following that path, self-evidently. And that's the disconnect. The disconnect is, if it is so easy and so obvious, and they were told, why aren't they doing it? And that disconnect naturally leads a believing Jew who's reading this letter to start searching for reasons that could explain Israel's persistent unbelief with everything going for them, everything kind of going their way. Why aren't they getting it? And many of those reasons that they might propose, they have the potential to lay the blame at God's feet. And that's what Paul's trying to deal with. So Paul makes his audience's argument for them, and then he refutes it. And he begins with that series of questions in verse 14. Paul says, why have the Jewish people failed to call upon the name of the Lord so as to be saved? Well, let's see. What are some reasons why they have failed to call on the name of the Lord like we expect that they should? Well, how can the people of Israel call on the name of the Lord if they've not first believed in him? Well, that makes sense, right? You're not going to call on something unless you believe it to be God, right? Okay, that makes sense. And for that matter, how can you expect them to believe in Jesus if they've never heard about Jesus? Well, that makes sense, right? I mean, people don't just magically come to the knowledge of Jesus on their own, right? Someone tells them about it. And how are they going to hear about Jesus if no one's preaching to them about Jesus? Well, makes perfect sense again. And how will preaching take place if the church isn't sending preachers to the people of Israel? After all, God has declared in Isaiah that his good news will be delivered by men whom the Lord sends to his people. What they're arguing for here, obviously, is something very interesting but very wrong. And I want you to notice the progression of logic in these questions. Paul's audience is assuming that Israel sits outside God's mercy merely because of a communication breakdown. God has everything set up for his people to be saved all the way back to the law and the prophets. He just laid out the whole story, told him everything about what was going to happen, did it all as he said, brought it all to fruition in Jesus. And then at the last minute, someone didn't get the memo. The plan fell apart. Preachers weren't sent to the right places. Information didn't get there on time. People didn't hear the news. People don't know about what's going on. It's complete mass bedlam. And look what happened. We lost the whole nation. And yet God promised to send his good news to Israel. Must be God's fault. 
God promised he would bring good news to these people and it just fell apart. They didn't hear it. They didn't know it. He failed to keep his promises to Israel. He failed to tell them about the good news of the Messiah and on and on. If this analysis were true, we'd be looking at the biggest fiasco in the history of mankind, wouldn't we? I mean, only the introduction of new Coke could even compare to this. And it's a ridiculous suggestion. I mean, we know this, but it's being discussed here because it was likely what Paul knew was being considered by his Jewish readers. Which is why Paul goes through this response with Scripture to demonstrate the error in this thinking. This is not a passage that supports the premise that we can just save more people if we were just more effective in evangelism. What it's saying is the opposite. In verse 16, Paul says plainly, well, you know, the truth is not all Israel heeded the good news. In other words, even among those who heard, even among those who were given the full story, most did not accept it as true. In Jesus' own words, or in the words of the 12 disciples, or in the words of any of those who've come after them. The message came to at least some, but most did not receive it. Only the remnant did, Paul says. The majority rejected it. He quotes from Isaiah 52, 15, and this is what Isaiah says. Thus, the Lord will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told to them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying the message of the Messiah will arrive and be heard and seen by those who had no preparation for it, didn't know it was coming, didn't even know it was going to happen. But then meanwhile, Isaiah asks in this kind of self-pitying voice, but who's believed the prophet's message? Remember, who's a prophet sent to in, in the Bible? Who receives a prophet in the Bible? Israel. Prophets are Jews. They're sent to Israel, by and large. A few exceptions. So when a prophet says, who believes our message, what they're complaining about is, none of the Jewish people are receiving what I'm saying. And that was pretty much the, the way every prophet's life went. There was no more thankless job in Israel than to be a prophet. Because your job was to tell God's truth to a group of people who could not care less about what you had to say about God. So what Isaiah is noting is, while the Gentiles were receiving this news gladly, the very people who were designed to receive it through prophets... We're not listening to the prophets. Even though Paul's audience has assumed that Israel could be convinced to the truth of the gospel, if only they were more effective in getting the message to them, Paul says, no, they wouldn't, because they didn't. When the message of the Messiah was delivered, just as God promised, most ignored it, just as the Lord said would happen, just as Israel has traditionally done with the word when it came to them from any prophet. Remember, Jesus said, it's not right that a prophet should die outside Jerusalem. What a great job description, right? Near the end of the description, die in Jerusalem. <laughs> Paul says, this outcome, this pattern we're talking about, reinforces the truth that he presented to us back in Romans 9. He sums it this way. Faith comes from hearing. That is to say, God prepares the message of salvation and he delivers the message to us and we hear it. We believe it. We confess it. We call upon the name of the Lord. We're saved. So in human terms, saving faith is a very simple thing. Anyone can understand it. That is, a message is heard and received. But now how do you explain Israel's rejection of good news? Think of it in another context for a minute to understand how challenging a question that truly is. If I said two plus two is four to a room full of people, would there be a 50% of the people who would just completely reject it and in anger and disgust, walk out of the room at the suggestion that 2 plus 2 is 4. Once it's understood and explained, they'd get it, and there'd be no discussion. We'd move on, right? 
the truth of Jesus is just as plain to the Jew in all respects, not just his lineage and his birthright, but also his miracles and his words. It was undeniable that he was Messiah in all that he did. And if that wasn't enough, he resurrected. But despite that, the majority did not accept the truth of it. Yet some did. How can the same set of events be compelling to one group and completely of no interest to another? You can't explain that in human terms. I mean, if everyone has the same brain, it's all working for the most part in normal terms. Nobody is deficient in their thinking. No one lacks any of the data. If we all have the same information, it should lead everyone to the same conclusion if it's rational. And yet, irrationally, most of the nation rejected him. And irrationally, a whole other group of people who knew nothing about him embraced him. You can't explain that in human terms. So Paul says, yes, faith comes by hearing. That's the simple part. But then Paul says, hearing the message depends on something else. Depends on the word of Christ. And what he's saying is the capacity to hear and to heed. In fact, the word in Greek for hear can also be translated heed. It's not, it's not just receiving message. It's obeying it. That's the sense of the word. That, friends, is determined by the word of Christ. Heeding the message of the gospel depends on the word of Christ. It doesn't depend on the mechanics of your presentation. The outcome of any gospel presentation depends on God to either grant that audience ears to hear, as Jesus would say, or to deny them the same. Remember, he has mercy on whom he chooses and he hardens whom he chooses. So in human terms, faith comes by hearing a gospel presentation. But in spiritual terms, a person's potential to heed what they hear is determined by the word of Christ. Or you could say, the Lord will determine who truly hears the message of the gospel. To the argument that we just need to send more preachers so they can hear more good news so they can believe, Paul says they had that opportunity and most of them didn't believe it. So what you're learning is it doesn't just depend on the presentation, it depends on the God who saves. And then in verse 18, Paul addresses the next audience objection. His audience might respond to that by saying, well, surely Israel just never heard the message at all. Maybe there's still a chance they could hear. Maybe there's still a chance God would let them receive Christ. To which Paul shuts the door on that excuse. In verse 18, he quotes from Psalm 19, where David is declaring that the creation itself reveals the truth of God. Now, Paul's point is not that Israel should have deciphered the message of the gospel by staring into the night sky. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's drawing a comparison between general revelation and specific revelation. The psalmist testifies that God is so intent on communicating to mankind that he even speaks to us through the very creation itself, testifying to his existence, to his power, to his nature and his character and so on. Therefore, how much more opportunity did Israel have to hear the message of Christ through the specific revelation of the word of God that they received? You see the comparison? The Jewish people were entrusted with the word of God, so they among all people should have known who Jesus was and should have anticipated his coming and should have recognized him when he came. They knew it better than Gentiles. All Gentiles had was general revelation, the very fuzzy evidence, if you will, that God exists, but certainly nothing specific enough to know that Jesus would be the Messiah. You cannot look at Orion and come out of that with an appreciation of the gospel message, and nor does God expect you to do that. That's why he gives you the Bible. His readers might say, well, maybe they haven't heard. Paul's message back to them is that people group got more of God's voice than any other people group on earth. And the psalmist, who is a Jew, said that even the creations can testify to God. 
Then his readers might ask in verse 19, well, perhaps the people just didn't know. Maybe they just didn't understand what they heard. Then in other words, they didn't understand scripture. They didn't realize all that it was saying to them about Jesus. They were confused. They were mistaken. You know, they, they, they were unable to comprehend Jesus as the fulfillment of everything they'd been told to look for. And here again, Paul says, nope. He quotes first from the law in Deuteronomy 30, where Moses declares that God's plan was to bring understanding to Gentiles who had no reason or care of a Messiah and at the same time leave Israel outside his grace so that he might make them jealous of Gentiles. Now, this often gets us a little confused because when we think of jealousy, we think of it as if they might want what we have. And yet you can tell plainly Jews are not drawn into jealousy for Christ because we have Christ, right? It's not forcing Gentiles to run to Christ when they see us worshiping him. That's not what jealousy means here. It doesn't infer that they will want to worship Jesus or make them jealous to know him. Instead, what he means is Jews will increase in their desire for a Messiah when they see and hear Gentiles declaring, we have found one. The desire for a Messiah is kept alive in an apostate Jewish culture by a world of Gentiles who keep talking about a Messiah. Isn't that interesting? But of course, the main point is that it's not a problem of knowledge. Israel heard enough to recognize Jesus. They understood perfectly well when Jesus did come that he was claiming to be their Messiah. They just rejected the premise. They refused to accept his testimony. In fact, they killed him because he claimed to be Messiah, did they not? What better evidence do we need that they understood what the message was? No, the reason Israel has not received Messiah is because God has not granted them mercy to receive Messiah. Paul puts the final nail in his reader's coffin of hope, to badly mix my metaphor, by quoting from Isaiah once more. Isaiah foretold that God would make opportunity for Gentiles to know him, though Gentiles were not inclined to seek him. And he manifested himself to them, though they did not ask to know him. Now, I want you to imagine this. If God could manifest himself to people who didn't want him in such a way that they embrace him in droves, well, then certainly he could have overcome Israel's objections, couldn't he? Well, obviously, if God had wanted his own people to receive Messiah, he certainly could have brought about that outcome. They had everything they needed in contrast to Gentiles who had nothing. They were looking, they heard, they understood, and God fulfilled all his promises to them in the open without deception, and they still said no. So Paul emphasizes the magnitude of the opportunity that God offered in verse 21, quoting from Isaiah a final time. He says, God has held out his hand to Israel, but they were disobedient. What Paul's describing is the degree of preparation and grace God gave to Israel in the years leading up to Messiah. He literally spelled it out for them. He told them where Messiah would be born, the time in which he would be born, the family line he would come from, the miracles he would perform, the way he would have to die. And God told Israel exactly how they could receive righteousness simply by confession of faith. They had the whole plan. And nevertheless, they resisted it and they continued to go on their own path to righteousness. So has God been unfaithful to this group of people? Did he fail to do anything he promised for their sake? Did he trick them? Did he hide something from them? No, they, they had everything, far more than Gentiles, but they remained obstinate and disobedient. They preferred the law rather than God's righteousness. And so apart from the remnant, here we are today, just as it was in Paul's day, Israel without Christ by and large and of general, generally of no interest in him. And as we reach the end of chapter 10, we come to another unavoidable conclusion, which leads us into 11 next week. That is, 
The Lord did not give Israel ears to hear the gospel. He sent them a Christ as he promised, but he left them in their sins. He kept his promise to bring him and he kept his promise to preserve a remnant. But he passed over the majority of Israel in Jesus day and in the years that have come since. And as obvious as that conclusion is, it still leaves you searching for the why. Because, you know, God from chapter nine chooses who receives his mercy. You know, he always has a minority or a remnant that he maintains. You know, he's been fair to Israel, at least in the sense of doing everything he said he would do, giving them exactly what he promised. And yet we also know every Jew since Jesus' day has had exactly the same opportunity, the same path to salvation that you and I have. That is, they could call on the name of the Lord, and most of them aren't doing it. But we also know the Lord could have made them do it. He could have overcome their objections. He could extend his mercy to them, bring them into faith. In the same way that the Lord is calling Gentiles to him now who are not even looking for him, he could have drawn Israel to him who is looking for him. So why hasn't he done it? That is, what is at the end of this elaborate plan to promise something while holding back the nation for a time to let others in? Where is this ultimately going to go? That's chapter 11, Israel's future. And that's what we do next week. Dear Father, help us understand these things. Help help us reconcile our own life in ministry with what we learn uh, so that as we understand your power and your sovereignty and the outcomes of these things, Father, don't let it Dissuade us one bit about going out and boldly proclaiming the truth, uh, praying for those we wish to see saved. And yet at the same time, Father, not working our own strength or ignoring uh, the signs you may show us of where you are at work so that we're always with you in what you're doing. We understand these things work together, perhaps even as we may not fully understand them. But in the declaring of your truth, Father, we glorify you more than any other way. That is, we honor you by we by the way, we honor your word. Thank you, Father, for the chance to honor you tonight and in weeks to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.